Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, another week where we are set to continue our reflections into the beauty of our Christian Catholic faith. Each and every Monday and Tuesday, we explore the book of Genesis, and this evening, we are going to dive into Genesis chapter 29. Now, I continue to receive uh, questions, comments, observations, um, many of which are about how surprised you are about what you are discovering as you read the book of Genesis. And yeah, I mean, if I've said it once, I've probably said it 10 times. There is so much here beyond those typical narratives that we are familiar with of, you know, Adam and Eve and, and Cain and Abel and, and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as we've been talking about them. There are so many life lessons that can be found in the book of Genesis. I mean, you can make an argument that all of life's lessons can be found in the book of Genesis as you really get underneath some of these dialogues between God and his patriarchs and great leaders, but also in the exchange between some of these leaders and those around them. There's just so much to apply to our own life here. And so that is what makes this study on the book of Genesis, I think, so valuable and why yeah, we're in Genesis chapter 29, but I think this is like program 54, 55. I have to go back and do the exact count, but we have been in the book of Genesis for quite some time because, you know, you get going on some verses and then you hit one of these conversations and it just kind of stops you in your track. And it really forces you, if you're going to read the text critically, to ponder, to reflect with, because there's something there. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes we have a narrative that has us thinking about our Lord's life. And this evening, Genesis chapter 29, we have Jacob's well. And so what I want to do is use this chapter, certainly we're going to speak to the chapter itself, but also use this chapter to consider once again that all-important narrative between Christ and the Samaritan woman, that the longest narrative in the gospel, right, outside of the passion narrative. So we're going to get back into that. I know I have already touched upon it one time when we were reflecting into Jacob's well. Questions had come up, so we're going to get into that a little bit more. All right. With that, let us jump into Genesis chapter 29. I will go ahead and read to verse 30. Uh, Genesis chapter 29 is more than verse 30, but verses 31 to 35 I want to, I think, leave for tomorrow. Um, because there's just so much there that we wouldn't have enough time to, to get into that. And then, as we make some points to Genesis 29, we will then get into some of John chapter 4, because there is just such a beautiful connection to be made between Genesis chapter 29 and John chapter 4. Uh, Genesis chapter 29, and verses 1 to 30, as the Ignatius commentary highlights, is really the betrothal and marriages of Jacob in the first episode, you have what we can rightfully call divine providence, and how divine providence arranges the encounter between Jacob and Rachel, 
and in stirring this enthusiasm of Laban for their union. In the second set of verses, verses 15 to 30, you have what we can call divine justice. Divine justice because the justice of God catches up with Jacob, who we have already talked about as the deceiver, and ultimately gives him, I think, a first taste of the cruelty of deception. And you'll hear that here as we read verses 15 to 30. All right, first, Genesis chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. The peoples of the east are, are the Semitic peoples of Mesopotamia, right? right verse 2, as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place upon the mouth of the well. Verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the animals to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone in my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful and lovely. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, 
It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Do you hear <laughs> what is going on there? Man, complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to wife. Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Okay, well, again, <laughs> as I noted, pieces to address here before we get into John chapter 4. First of all, verse 10. I want to talk about this here. Now, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. So <laughs> he sees Rachel. And after he sees Rachel, he's inspired to move this large stone. Now, in the commentaries, you're going to see a lot of reflection into whether or not he got uh, the other shepherds to help them. But what we do know is that upon seeing the woman whom he loved, he was inspired to act. And this becomes the first of a number of actions that leads him ultimately to be with uh, Rachel. So the question, you know, does he receive superhuman strength at the sight of his first love, love at first sight, right? Uh, we don't know that. <laughs> I know I've heard homilies talk about that, but really in the end, we don't know that. You know, Jacob was a big man, so it might have been nothing more than uh, just rolling back the stone on his own. Let's put this in, in bigger picture context here to this chapter. <laughs> he served Laban for seven years. And those seven years seemed like what? But just a few days because he loved her. I mean, I think we have all been there when you fall in love with your beloved. And what do we say? Time flies by. Incidentally, my friends, that is a phrase we use. Time just flies by in relationship with um, falling in love because of this verse. If you were to actually go back into the history of that phrase, it's tied to this verse. That time flew by, if you will, for Jacob because he was so in love with Rachel. So in love that he served seven years for her. I mean, we can't stand to wait a day, right, for, for what we desire, our beloved. And yet, Jacob serves for seven years. And then, and then, in an act of divine justice that we were talking about, he has to serve another seven years. What was going on there, by the way? You know, verse 25, you deceived me. Well, first of all, we might ask the question, how can that possibly happen? I mean, come on. If you were to go back into the, the meaning of these names, Leah means wild cow, Rachel means ewe lamb. So the Hebrews communicating physically at least, that Rachel is more beautiful than Leah. How can he possibly confuse that? Well, we know that on wedding nights, the brides were customarily veiled, huh? This combined with the darkness of his tent, Jacob's tent, probably explains why Jacob is blind to the scheming of his uncle until the morning after. Now, the big question, the larger question is, why? Well, we hinted towards it with that phrase, divine justice. Because in these verses, one certainly can sense 
that Jacob is paying the just penalty for deceiving his blind father Isaac. Did we not hear of the language of the firstborn? Yeah, there's a reason why. Because of the deception that was going on with Isaac. That Jacob is tricked into marrying the firstborn likewise recalls what, but how he himself used trickery to steal the firstborn blessing from his older brother Esau. But what happens after that? He has to serve another seven years if he wants Rachel. So what does he do? He serves another seven years. So he has to be at the service of another for 14 years to ultimately be able to have Rachel as his wife. And did time fly the second seven years? You better believe it because of his heart's desire. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, first and foremost, because this is the reality that is before Jacob. And also, let's put this in relationship to God as our beloved. I mean, have we ever thought about it? Just as time flies when we are in courtship with our beloved, can we say that time flies in our everyday relationship with God? Can we say that as we are anticipating our ultimate union with God in the heavenly Jerusalem, that here on earth time flies because we are at the service of God? We should appreciate the significance of the Eucharist here because in the Eucharist, God enters into a bridal union with our souls. And as he does, he satisfies that thirst. He satisfies that desire. But we know that it is only a provisionary satisfaction. That this fulfillment is only partial. While necessary and good here on earth, it signifies and points to something greater. That greater which awaits us. So let us remember that when we talk about uh, falling in love and how time flies when we fall in love, if we transfer this to a relationship with Jesus Christ and a relationship with God, maybe, just maybe, my friends, as we go deeper into prayer, we might discover what? That time flies. That time flies. Now, we should talk about this within the context of God and, and beloved, because is this not what is going on in John chapter 4? And I would argue something we ought to consider in the light of Genesis chapter 29. Let us go back to John chapter 4. I know, again, we've already talked about this, and some questions had come up. There were some surprises, and I think there were some aha moments for some. Certainly there was one for me when I first came across this study. So we read in John chapter 4, and I will go ahead and pick up um, with just verse 1. Now, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again in Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, that's an interesting phrase, an interesting verse. He had to pass through Samaria. So, yeah, if he was going to go where he wanted to go, then he had to pass through Samaria. But it's more than just a geographical necessity. It was providentially necessary. Why? Well, let's get into that. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, my friends, we've already talked about this to some degree because, remember, 
just as Isaac found his bride at a well, as we read in Exodus chapter 2, verses 15 to 21, Moses found his bride at a well, so Jacob finds his bride at a well. So when you hear the word well, finding your bride, it really is synonymous for the first century reader. If you are reading the Gospel of John in the first century, and you hear of Jacob's well, you're probably thinking of bride. Before you even get to the Samaritan woman, right? You're already thinking about all of the many narratives that are caught up with the well in the Old Testament. You're thinking about Isaac. You're thinking about Jacob. You're thinking about Moses, huh? And you're also thinking about water because it's a well. So we read in verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? So here, the Samaritan woman is recognizing that Jacob is her father. The Samaritan woman is recognizing the significance of what happened at Jacob's well. What we were just talking about as it relates to the well, right? The well in Haran. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, clearly at this point, realizing that something's different about this man, right? Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And then Jesus says, I think, something to her that is very curious. Go call your husband and come here, right? Now, again, you're reading this in the first century. When you see that this is Jacob's well, you're thinking about bride and husband. And then Jesus asks this question, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So what is going on there? Well, remember what we talked about some weeks ago, that when the tribes of Israel broke and those 10 tribes went up north to worship on Mount Gerizim, they entered into the worship of five false gods. Those five false gods were the five Baals, B-A-A-L-S. That Hebrew word translates as husband. They worshiped five false husbands. So when Jesus says here, for you have had five husbands and he whom you now have is not your husband, this you said truly. He's saying, you've had your false gods, but now I have come as the one true God, one true husband. And again, her response suggests that she's starting to get it, 
<laughs> the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. By the way, that is a recourse to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. There we read, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this Samaritan woman is clearly familiar with not only that verse, but ultimately the fulfillment of that verse before her. As she goes on, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship? Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, What do you wish or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to the city and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me that all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. All right. So here in this series of verses, we read them because ultimately what I want us to see is that first and foremost, Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. He is the new husband who has called his bride to her. And the Samaritan woman is but an archetype of the church herself, right? Anyone who in sacred scripture, he would suggest to say, you are my bride. He speaks to it spiritually. And as he does, it's something that speaks to, of course, the church herself. Now this becomes very physical in that he gives of himself. And this is what we receive in the Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. But to this chapter, what we are made to understand is that we have the meeting between a bride and a new husband, and it takes place at a well. And there's great significance in this. Again, I cannot reinforce enough because if you are reading this in the first century, you are seeing that the Samaritan woman is one who represents essentially the 10 tribes who broke from the other two. Jesus has come to reunite the 12 tribes. And for John chapter 4, there at Jacob's well, the time is here and now that Christ in the new covenant apostolic church has in fact reunited the 12 tribes. And in the Eucharist, we can rightfully say he is our husband, right? He is the one who enters into a bridal union with our souls. I go to John chapter 4 because this is where people would have went post-Christ when they read Genesis chapter 29. Because if you want to marinate in the richness of this chapter, you do so by reading with it John chapter 4. And all we needed was, this is Jacob's well. 
All right. I know uh, we got into a lot there, but certainly the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. One of the lasting impressions for me as I was reading Genesis chapter 29 brings me back to what I was speaking to as it relates to divine providence and divine justice as the commentary was talking about it. What you have in divine providence is ultimately God blessing us with his sovereign love, whereby providentially he reveals to us that he is a father who keeps his promises. And sometimes some of that promise includes divine justice, right? (laughs) And as a father, I get this. As a father, I get this because sometimes my children say, gosh, dad, and I'm paraphrasing now, that's, that's too just of you. Uh, that, that, the consequence just seems too harsh. But what they don't always realize and won't maybe until they, they are parents themselves is that love is the motive of my justice. You see, I am giving you this consequence because I understand that if you keep on this pattern of behavior, there very well might be grave consequence. And I don't want you to have to go through that. So you're going to learn your lesson now. It's love that motivates me. It's merciful love that motivates me. Now, yes, God is a God of justice, and he is also a God of mercy. And as such, he is a God who forgives. But never at the cost of, of justice. Because justice, never defined as just equality, but given each their due, is something that is rooted in what is necessary to bring us along into full maturity, full stature as a son or daughter of God. And this, my friends, we ought to appreciate. God provided for Jacob, right? He blessed Jacob, and he gave him a little dose of his own medicine. Right? And that dose of his own medicine was but an act of his love, and certainly a blessing all the while as he was able to remain with Rachel, his beloved. Huh? All right. If you have any questions, comments, observations about anything we have talked about this evening, I I try to, as we move along through the book of Genesis, reinforce certain things, certain topics, certain principles. Um, Whatever is on your heart, please don't hesitate to ask me at uh, j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com or as always, you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. All right, let's wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.